Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always bringing you the finest in indie pop and beyond. As you know, we always love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Tav Felco, who I spoke to a few weeks ago. He was on tour in the UK, was coming to Norwich. And we wanted to find out more about his life and love of performing. This is the interview. This is the first part where I had mentioned about still being on the road and still doing it and being impressed. And this was Tav's answer. Tav, take it away. I'm a performer and that's what I do. Yes. And to get from one stage to another, there's a road in between quite often. (laughs) Yes. On that road, I'm I'm no particular lover of road life, but um, I accept it, and uh, I keep going because, you know, I'm I'm a performer, and we're a performance band. We make records. We're more performance oriented. Yes, because you're of that generation who were growing up, and I suppose it was you were sort of very similar age to people like David Bowie and. Dear old Lemmy from Motorhead, that sort of almost just that post-war period, wasn't it, where you were sort of, you were born basically during that. And then obviously the world of rock and roll and music, did it sort of seep into your consciousness? Because when when those two guys would ever talk about their musical influence, they both used to say separately, but both exactly the same two words, was Little Richard was the kind of the moment that they thought, God, I want to do that myself. (laughs) Well, it's odd you say that. Um or serendipitous, because on our tour video um, for this particular tour, I um, have an image of a, a marvelous portrait of Little Richard. Right. That, uh, yeah, a headshot, and he's, his, his coiffure is magnificent. Absolutely. Eye make, the eye makeup is so, so stunning, and he's... Like he said in, about his band, I'm the only one allowed to be pretty in my band. <laughs> he felt Jim Hendrix, right? Because he was playing guitar with him for a while. Yes. So, um, I mean, so I read that somewhere. Can't I know. believe everything you need, though, can you? But I wouldn't be surprised if that were not the case. Um, yeah, Little Richard defined uh, rock and roll for many of us as, you know, some of his... Many of his contemporaries did too, but Little Richard in particular had that uh, driving beat. And then, of course, the movie that came out, um, The Girl Can't Help It, yes. he uh, has a scene in that film. And that played all over USA. And I was a kid and I was in the theater and everybody was dancing in the aisles when that scene came on the screen. So Little Richard had the sound, he had the lyrics, he had the glamour. And this is, uh, he had sex and he had glamour and he had, um, he had the black lyrics, you know, the funny lyrics too, like, um, you know, Long Tall Sally, uh, uh, she makes bread slice turn to toast and, yeah, you know, uh, Uncle John and, uh, all those funny lyrics in the song, uh, um, so was when you kind of heard, because this is what they, they would say, and then also there was a DJ in the UK that we loved called John Peel, 
and again, you know, it was that kind of again. Everyone seems to go back to Little Richard, and then El- and obviously Elvis. But that moment that you just think, God, there was just there was nothing like that before. It was just such a shock. Where it's very hard now for anything to be musically that shocking because it's kind of this just variations on things that have been done. But then it was almost like, well, that is kind of ground zero. Before that, you know, you might have jazz and blues and musical, but nothing quite like those kind of outrageous lyrics and that crazy beat from Little Richard. And and obviously people, the society and establishment were slightly worried about it and were hoping it was a passing phase or at least, you know, someone could be arrested and put in jail. But obviously, as they say, you know, the... the, um, the animals out of the cage and, and it was just going to run rampant. So did you have a kind of a similar experience with, with that kind of world? I did, in fact. Um, there was not a name for this music in the beginning. Uh, Sam Phillips didn't have a name for it in Memphis. They didn't have the word rock and roll. They were still experimenting. And then once this term began to be uh, in, in usage and the term was coined, people weren't sure it was going to last. And even Elvis thought, well, said in interviews during that period, that, well, no one's sure how long this rock and roll is going to last. You know, uh, we, we, we really don't know. It's just a trend or, or what. And so he was a little worried about it. You could tell. Yeah, well, I remember there was, there was a little video of um, or film of you know the the Stones. I think it was probably 1963 with Mick being, well, the band, but Mick being interviewed and saying, you know, what you know, what's next? And he's like, well, we've got an album, and then a tour, and that will be possibly two or three more years, as if to say, and then that's going to be it. So you know, and and being a member of the audience, I remember in the cinema, everyone chuckled because obviously, <laughs> decades later, they're still doing it. But then you could just see this kind of well, you know, this might happen for a couple more years if we're lucky. But, you know, it's like, wow. Well, if the door is open, they're going to walk through it. Yes, this is true. So, I'm not so sure about rock and roll in some ways, though, because we had a lot that came before. And we had a lot of enormous import. And rock and roll eclipsed jazz, eclipsed American jazz, eclipsed blues for quite a while until it was revived later in the 60s. Of course, what we know as rock and roll is pretty much predicated on the blues, and so is jazz, no matter how cerebral your taste might be in jazz, from the most contemporary avant-garde to the earliest forms of hot jazz. It all came from the blues, And, well, blues wasn't really intended to be a commercial medium. It was a community-type music. It was played on the porch. It wasn't until W.C. Handy wrote down blues music in in, uh, tablature and wrote blues songs that were sophisticated, to a degree, because W.C. Handy was a trained musician, and he had an orchestra. He was impressed with what he saw of the blues when he and his orchestra were performing around the South one night in Mississippi. 
he was, his orchestra was performing before a group of planters at one of their uh, aristocratic parties. And there were three bluesmen, uh, actually, maybe a little earlier than blues. They, you know, bluesmen in those days played not only blues, but they also played cakewalk and some other popular dances and, and popular tunes to keep the audience, you know, interested. So he saw these these three blues-type musicians play, and he saw how enthralled these wealthy planters um, and their sons and daughters, how they were attracted to this music, this, this folk music, and how they were throwing silver dollars at the feet of the musicians. Yeah. Let me see hand back to Memphis and he said, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a blues. I'm, I'm gonna create some blues music. And he did that and he he did Memphis blues and St. Louis blues and Beale Street blues. If Beale Street could talk. Yeah. If Beale Street could talk, many people would pick up their bed and walk. Because, um, well, a lot happened on Beale Street. That was the black street of the American South. Everything on Beale Street was black. The theaters, the music, the barbers, the dentists, the doctors, the banks. And it was um, a refuge, and it was a beacon of black culture. So, anyway, what we have as rock and roll was perhaps more overtly sexual, but only in degree compared to what we had during the hot jazz period in the 1920s. That was a liberated period. Certainly there was as much of the sexual revolution as what we had in the 1950s, and then what took hold with the psychedelic period in the 1960s. Yes. So we think of, you know, sure, Elvis was a sexual creature, there was a revolution below the belt in the 1950s and, and then uh, a uh, period of liberation and revolution in the 1960s. But one must be aware, a revolution, there's always sacrifice. You sacrifice something in your culture that you'll never retrieve. You may try to resurrect it at some point and try to reanimate part of it. It'll never be quite what it was once you've lost it. So it's something of a trade-off. Yeah. We gain a lot of ground in a revolution, and I was part of that revolution. I'm a product of the 19, turbulent 1960s, but I'm also aware now how much we, what we lost. Yes. In the terms of, of culture, in terms of a cordiality, in the terms of relationships between men and women. Sure, women think they're more on a more equal basis now, provisionally, perhaps so. However, they've also, I think, lost a certain, a certain celebration in the eyes of men. You know, the age of chivalry that you 
that you developed in in Great Britain, you know, back in the chivalrous times. Mm. You know, there was a certain beauty in that and a certain elevation of the female in our culture and society. Well, I think when there's a when there's a change like the like the when there's a change as you mentioned, and revolution, it probably is and is you know it's not a huge revolution that you can get where you know governments fall and you know dictatorships appear. But this is kind of more of a a teen revolution than anything. I think what happens, especially in later decades, is when people start to analyse it. There were some great things that happened and then there were some kind of bad things that also happened. And I know a lot of women who write about that time, who lived through it, realise that actually it wasn't very good for them. There was a lot of exploitation from people that I suppose, you know, were, were their kind of equals in one way. But they, the sexual revolution meant that actually they did from speaking to quite a few feminists from that period, they lost a lot because actually there was a lot of people who started taking advantage of this new idea that somehow you're sticking it to the man by being a little bit kind of loose. And if you weren't loose and free with your sexuality, you were somehow a straight and thus kind of became a pariah within that community. So I have heard that particular conversation and and kind of not so much an argument just a point because that's what a lot of women experienced during that time but then that is the kind of so-called honeymoon period where things are kind of all very excitable and then when the dust settles you can pick what bits kind of worked and what bits didn't work really Mm -hmm. after the rapture um and you know that initial liberation but um yeah it's it's something that there's so many cultural uh, confluences, and especially in volatile times. Our times now are not so volatile. No, but you got through. Well, but I, I suppose coming back to that '60s period, then obviously you were sort of excited, and and well, hopefully you were excited. But you could see that some people got it, and some people had missed it. Like Elvis was definitely missing it, and he was just looking much more conservative. Where suddenly the Jimi Hendrix and the Doors and and Jefferson Airplane and that kind of counterculture stuff, especially from the the West Coast, and you had the Monterey Pop Festival in '67, Woodstock in '69, and and so yeah. there was for. For people in the UK, you know, looking over to the the USA for, you know, like a lot of kind of early inspiration and then taking the baton and doing their own thing with the Beatles and the Stones and the Kings, say, you then also realise that there were also other people like Jack Kerouac, who was the great beat writer who did On the Road. I mean, he he started a lot off in the 50s where everyone was getting very excited, but then by the, the middle to late 60s, He'd become this very grumpy old alcoholic, still living with his mum and drinking himself to death. So it's kind of interesting when people miss the boat, so to speak, or they don't quite want to follow it, but then they get a bit lost within their own identity. So Elvis was going to, was it Nixon and wanting to sort of be sort of honorated or, or given some honour for sort of... Yeah. You know. I think that was all Elvis said, he had to go out to the White House. I think that was a surprise visit to Nixon. A surprise visit. And he looked a little bit, he says, out of touch with the youth at that stage in his life. And I thought he looked absolutely brilliant that day. Um, what this trip that, that flipped me out was that he went to Nixon and he said... Hey, I want to be an agent on your, you know, war on drugs or whatever it was. And he was, Elvis is obviously so stoned. 
at that moment. I mean, he, you know, his eyes were half closed uh, or, you know, half open, one or the other. And you could just see that he was really whacked out. And it's it baffles the imagination how someone who is so sexual, who was so culturally revolutionary in a unself-conscious way, in the 1950s, you know, interviewers would say, well, what about these gyrations, Elvis? What about this, this sexuality? What about our young women here? What? He says, well, you know, I just, sir, I just go out there and, and just, and just to perform the way I feel, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. I don't see anything that's objectionable in, in what I do on stage. I don't even think about it. So here's this unselfconscious uh, artist from Memphis who was totally saturated with um, the black R&B artists that surrounded him every day. And these people were, were very sexual. Their music was sexual. The church, the black church was sexual. So then in the 1960s, he and Jerry Lee all of a sudden, they've got this, you know, they hang out with the police department in Memphis. And, well, that's okay. But, you know, they get this conservative mindset that that part is out of touch. Although his image lives on, the Beatles adored Elvis, the Rolling Stones, they, <laughs> and a lot of other groups, you know. Yeah, and a well, lot of David, you know, David Bowie always mentioned Elvis, you know, after Little Richard. And, you know, and obviously, and John Peel did as well. He was the DJ in this country. And everyone was influenced by Elvis. But I suppose he'd become a bit of a caricature a little bit later on in his life. And I suppose, like a lot of people, as you, as a lot of people get older, they become conservative with both a small and a big C. <laughs> yes. I'm trying desperately not to become a uh, a parody of myself. Yes. So look, when you were cuz cuz you you're a sort of you're also an Italian American, aren't you? Who grew up in Philadelphia. So you've got quite a kind of interest and mixed, you know, kind of background yourself. So you must have brought in different influences and then sort of yeah, I mean, can sort of swing in several different camps really, can't you? Yeah, well, like, well, no, I, I didn't grow up in Philadelphia. I was born there, but my mother married another sailor and moved to Arkansas to the backwoods when I was five. I grew up in the American South. It's like an Italian growing up in Paris. You're, you're French, you know? So I'm a Southerner. I mean, that's just the way it is. I, I'm, I'm, there's nothing Yankee about me. So I grew up in that environment. I grew up with Jimmy Reed. I grew up with uh, Bo Diddley, with Jerry Lee, with Elvis, with Charlie Feathers, with um, all the Sun people they're listening to on the radio, you know, in, in, in Arkansas. I mean, like going to Memphis was like going to the moon, man. That was like going to, you know, the big city. You left Arkansas if you wanted to go to the city. You either went to Dallas or you went to Memphis. So I tried Dallas. And they almost destroyed me there. I barely got out of there with the shirt on my back. You know, I got involved in the periphery of a satanic cult. And anyway, I did get out. And uh, 
I uh, decamped to Memphis. And uh, that was where the real formation of my music and my work developed. Because I went to Memphis to be a filmmaker and photographer. And I did that in large part. And I published a book of photographs, an iconography of chance, 99 photographs of the evanescent South. Yes. Published by Creation Books. And my book on Memphis, my psychogeography of Memphis, um, Ghost Behind the Sun, Splendor, Enigma, and Death. And so there is where I eventually, out of frustration, in a sense of spite, started a rock and roll band named the Panther Burns, <laughs> named after the plantation in Mississippi, the legendary plantation. And so it's been my only band, and uh, it's been a, uh, a, a vehicle for me to express um, other than what is on the surface of a lot of my music, because I use, I use, it, I use it for things. I use... You know, we're a rock and roll combo, but we play a lot of different kinds of music in this context of a Memphis combo. You know, we're doing uh, our interpretation of tango, samba, waltzes, um, jazz, ballads, protest music. It's been, it served well. It served well because, you know, I, I, I can't just be an entertainer, David. It's too much of a job, and you know I, I don't want to work a job. I worked a couple of jobs earlier in my life. I had a railroad job. I was a railroad brakeman on a Missouri Pacific Railroad. Probably should have stayed with that job, but I, I got under the spell of music and theater and art and dance, and so I went this path. Yeah, and. Uh, I feel I feel good. I'm going to need to do my work, my own work. I'm surviving, and um, I meet beautiful people. And what more can you really ask for? I'd like to have an Alfa Romeo. Must someday I'll get one. Maybe who knows? I have a Norton motorbike um, from 1960. I feel good, man. Yes, and and, the, and one of your quotes, you, one of your sort of main artistic purposes that you quoted as to stir up the dark waters of the unconscious. So you've obviously, and you've all got this fantastic kind of, you've had this huge influence on so many bands and artists as well, from, you know, the Cramps to the Jim Jones experience to, you know, Alex Clinton, um, Clinton. Yeah, so you've, you know, you've... You mean Chilton, or do you mean George Clinton? No, I meant the former, <laughs> probably not. So, yeah, so you've had this huge influence on so many people as well, haven't you? So you must feel that um, you managed to sort of spread your aura into lots of different avenues. Well, I've spread my aura because that's really all I have to work with is my persona and my aura, and um, that's what's taking me to right here. It's... It's not other things. I don't believe in the word talent. We threw that out in the 1960s, a lot with, along with a lot of other Dietrichs. Yes. So um, I wasn't an influence on these particular people as much as they were on me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an impressionable person. And um, 
I'm impressed, though, by by the exceptional. Yeah. And what I do now has become rather exceptional. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight. I I had to work toward what I can do now because I'm at the height of my powers as a performer. And I keep going because I still notice some improvement every time I go on stage. So that keeps me interested. Well, I know. I mean, it's like you are one of the exceptional artists because mostly people, <clears throat> you know, have their kind of five-year narrative when they're in that sort of late teen, early 20s of of music and they, they kind of get burnt badly. You know, they, you know, basically they fall out with all their teeth, you know, like bandmates and they have bad management, they get ripped off. And then the musical scene changes and they, and they've kind of had enough and they think I might get another, I might get another career and job and put their, their guitar or microphone away for three decades and then come back to it. But you, you've stuck it and, and sort of keep on releasing new material, which is quite exceptional. Well, the revolutionary doesn't, he doesn't go out and get a job. Well, you have to sometimes to get a little side money. And, um, but I've pretty much done this since I started the band because, because there's a vision in the group. There's a vision in the idea of the Panther Burns and that we do, we do use this music, which is like voodoo music, to stir up the dark waters of the unconscious. That is what we do. And that's what interests me. That's what the symbolist poets did. That's what all about the Orphic vision, the vision of Orpheus. The Orphic vision going down into the into the underworld. That's where the creative wellsprings are. They're coiled down there. They're not up in the mystical heavens. It's down into the earth. That's into the unconscious. That's that's where the the creative life is. That's where that's where new songs come from. That's where films come from. That's where expressionist poems come from. I do one thing. I do one song. Everything I do is one song. Whether it's a book, a film, a photograph. That's all people are interested in, David. It's the secret eye of the artist. I don't care about this objective objectivity. I care about the subjective. That's what people are interested in in an artist, I think. Yes. Well, me anyway. You know, I want to know what that person is seeing. I want to know how that artist filters what he filters what he sees that i'm not seeing and what he feels maybe i can feel that too and the way he expresses it yeah i do feel it you see a great actor on the stage and you're moved by that especially when he has great lines and he has a great role actually somebody said there are no great actors there are only great roles but you put all that together and that's that's what's exciting. Yes. Well, I had sort of recently was rewatching 
Robert De Niro or The Goodfellas and just kind of was mesmerised by Robert De Niro's performance. And it's like, yeah, there is something quite unique. And I, I guess, and also, you know, artists, like you were saying there, they do tap into stuff. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I was always obsessed with David Bowie and I realised that looking back at his 60s work, that wasn't he didn't quite get it, but then he started to get it and then explored different things. And then his last album, Black Star, was quite kind of extraordinary because it had that kind of like, yeah. he knew he was dying and, and there were lyrics in that which, you know, were quite... It must have been very painful to write and sing, I think, because he obviously knew that there wasn't going to be much time left. And interestingly enough, Elvis Presley did a song called Black Star, which is all about dying and death as well. So it was quite interesting that David Bowie named the album Black Star. It's, it all ties I, up. I don't know that song by Elvis. I know the, the David Bowie album, which is quite moving yeah. and, 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 and lyrical, but I have to check out that, that, that Elvis Presley song. Yes, but um, it, it's all about sort of, you know, when you see the black star, you know your your time is over, so to speak. And it was quite interesting that Bowie had done a sort of album, you know, that was yeah. like that. But it was it was kind of, I suppose, one thing that, you know, obviously, you know, being an artist, you do have to sacrifice a lot. And I always remember there was a Hunter S. Thompson quote, which had, it was like, it goes like something, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where... We, Thieves and pimps run free, and good men die like dogs. There's also a yeah. neg- and there's also a negative side. Yeah. So you obviously have to deal with such a lot of low life business. Yeah, it can be very low life at times, and I've been all of, through all of this you have mentioned, and um, but you know the art the artist is much larger than all of that, and when you realize it. The petty bourgeoisie are not going to bring you down. Even when you're at the end of your rope, and you think you're out of everything, and you don't have another gig book, and you're out of money, what do you have left? You have yourself, and you have your art. And it's larger than any of that. It's larger than fate. And you realize that. You make it. You can keep going. And it's, it's like you don't have to know what's going to happen next. You don't have to know everything about what you're doing. Oftentimes, I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't care. Because I know there's something inside. I know there's something inside, and I don't have to understand it totally. But I can rely on that. And that will bring you through. And it's in everybody. Yes, which is interesting. And also, I mean, what is kind of boggling, though, is that you've, you've still got this kind of... You, ha- you haven't sort of slipped into that, that world that I mentioned earlier, the, the sort of conservative with a small C. You know, you still have the, the edge. The, it, it, this is probably the thing that sort of Elvis had missed somehow, that he needed to go on the road and, and be in a hotel in Newcastle and then come to Norwich and... Uh, and get away from Uncle Vegas. Tom Parker. Yeah, Elvis went to Vegas. That's the trip. He did everything Colonel Tom said. That was the tragedy. And Colonel Tom, you know, was a great promoter. Okay, a great personality. But he was a circus hawker. You can romanticize that, but he was a carnival barker man. You can romanticize that to an extent. But there's a limit. 
you got to draw the line. And that's the tragedy of Elvis. Yeah. He's a tragic figure. He was a tragic figure because he could have been so much greater than what he allowed to be done with himself. So he went to Vegas. I, I like Las Vegas. I like to play there. I never played, you know, the big rooms, of course. I played little gigs there. But what I like about it is that an entertainer or artist can go there and play every night if he wants to. And it's it's nonstop. It never shuts down, kind of like New Orleans. And New York used to be that way. Not anymore. But um, I like that aspect of it just because of it's it's an open stage, you might say. It's a theater that never closes. I like that idea. But the commerciality, who cares, you know? And apparently Elvis cared about that. And, Turtle, and Colonel, Colonel Tom, so many Americans define their existence by their income. And they're thrilled and get a hard on by how much cash flow there is. I mean, yeah, we like to have cash. You know, I told you about the Alfa Romeo, but, you know, I'm not going to work a job to get her. I'm not going to go work in Las Vegas and do what they tell me to do. I'll go to Las Vegas on my own terms only. Yes. And uh, in my own show. And, you know, um, Elvis put some of the stuff he was into in his show. I mean, he put some of his karate stuff in there and all of that. He got into karate and... He had some. He had some very good moves, actually. I have to say, you know, that was for a while. He must have been very fit. I mean, because your your life has been boggling, and you've met just about everybody that, um, you know, some amazing characters and done some amazing things. Have you ever sort of thought, I must just write my book because it's quite an interesting story? Well, you know, David, that um, psychogeography of Memphis. I I come into the book in chapter thirteen. Uh, the book begins before the War of Rebellion in America, at the very origins of Memphis. But with that book, I covered a lot of epochs and a lot of eras through the persona of the time traveler. And with that, I was able to express a lot of my thinking in this book even though I'm dealing with <clears throat> periods that I did not live in, but yet I invested my character, the alter ego of Eugene Battle, into each period. The Civil War, the, uh, the carpetbagger period, the labor movement in the 1930s, the ad labor agitators. Eugene Battle was, was there. He rode with the cavalry of Colonel, uh, General Nathan Bedford Forrest with the uh, Confederate troops who, um, uh, whose aides were all, were all black. And um, the book is full of surprises, a lot of surprises about the American South. I come into the book in Chapter 13. Chap Taft Falco comes into the book. And through the eyes of Eugene Baffle, we learn a lot about Taft Falco. We learn a lot about Alex Chilton. 
and Jim Dickinson, a lot of the people on the Memphis scene, and also in New York. New York figures in the book, too, to an extent. I'm not sure I have a lot more to say. Yeah. Falco. I don't want to write a memoir. Uh, I, I'm not really not interested in that. So we'll see, David. I, I may I may write something further, but um, not at this time. It'd have to be on down the road. Yeah. On something like that. But I just noticed and, recently there's been quite a few films people have started getting films made of, of sort of certain bands mostly you know they, they're sort of yeah just just suddenly I think there's a kind of a 30 year thing you know something happens and people go oh that's nice and then about time passes and then it's like god we must document that it's amazing archival stuff and I and I could imagine someone knocking on your door and saying I really want to make a film of your career that would be difficult because there's so much of it. I must admit that would be tricky to sort of nail it down into a snappy to our film. But there is just a lot there, isn't there? Well, an HBO producer in New York um, approached me about such a uh, such a film, and well, he ended up making a piece that was uh, 13 minutes in length. Um, he wanted to go back to. The pre-Panthburn days in Memphis, though, with the uh, video art action group I was a founder of, and uh, include that. But the whole thing, all of a sudden, took on epic proportions. So he ended up doing a uh, a thing called "Make Me Know Your Mind," concentrating on a show I did in New York in 2015, and he showed that piece to in, in a number of festivals and so on now is the film uh, film company in Rome that has embarked on a, a, a more ambitious project and they've done quite a bit of uh, filming so we'll see what happens um, speaking of film I've, I've also made a feature movie um, it's uh, actually part one of the Urania trilogy and we showed part one at some interesting places, including the Horse Hospital in London, a Silencio in Paris, which was um, in the Cinnamon Club designed by David Lynch. Actually, I'm going back there at the end of this tour for a concert. Um, and uh, we showed it at um, the Oxford Film Festival, uh, invited to that, the one in Mississippi, of course. Um Roxy Theater, San Francisco, American Cinematheque presented it uh, on Hollywood Boulevard at uh, the Egyptian Theater, Anthology Film Archives in New York. So the thing is, uh, now I have completed filming parts two and three, which is uh, was quite an undertaking, and uh, I'm in the process, we're in the process of editing now, so I will truncate part one and uh, assemble it with parts two and three into one feature film, and that will be making the rounds in the usual unreliable places in 2020. So look for that. It's, well, it's not a rock and roll movie, even though there is a little rock and roll at the very beginning. Uh, some music of Charlie Feathers uh, on track, and there's, but it's just only a 
slight snippet of uh, some of my recordings um, in the film. However, the theme song we did compose and uh, uh, within the band and recorded that in Rome. And uh, I'm pretty proud of that theme song. You're going to like it. It's got a real kind of 60s flair, Italian 60s soundtrack flair, whereas the film content itself is rather expressionist, very much German expressionist, imagistically, um, very much like the uh, film aesthetic of Louis Fouillard and the Fantomas series and the Les Vampires series. So it's all black and white, and it deals with the... Um, the phenomena of the uh, muse, the avatar of the muse Urania coming to Earth in the most unlikely form of a disaffected American girl on the banks of the Arkansas River who gets fed up with the strip malls and the rides by the Arkansas River and her BMW convertible and the being hassled by rednecks at the shopping mall. She buys a, a one-way ticket to Vienna one day, just in a, after being practically molested at a shopping center in daylight. And there, in Vienna, she becomes involved in an intrigue, in an imbroglio with... Carl Heinz von Riegel, Graf Carl Heinz von Riegel, who's on the uh, scene of the Demimonde in Vienna, who's uh, in the tango Demimonde. There's a whole tango underbelt in, in Vienna, and she becomes involved in this to, to fleece the coordinates of where Nazi plunder, gold and platinum ingots, were thrown into the deep waters of the Attersee. And Karl Heinz von Riegel has the plans that his father bequeathed him, who was an SS officer in charge of the last dispatch of worthless mail and gold and platinum from Berlin to Munich that was shot down over the Attersee by American forces. And that's true. So this is what my film is about. It's very romantic. It's very ironic. And it's contemporary. Even though the atmosphere is fantasiacal. But set in today's world. Because in that part of the world, people still live within the architecture, within the same streets and lanes, that they lived in for so long. So it's a film about atmosphere and mood and where the past overtakes the present and the present overtakes the past. So watch for the complete trilogy. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to be gripped by that. So yes, so, so hopefully this is going to be completed next year. Yes, uh, the filming is completed. Um, the editorial I hope to have, I hope to have done by February. 
I hope we can complete that by February. It's ambitious, but I, I hope so. Depends on how, how fast it goes. Um, it's, um, but at any rate, it'll be out 2020. Fantastic. Well, a new, a new year, new decade. Lots to do. Um, yeah. Both look forward to. It's going to be a, good. It's going to be a tricky. It could be an interesting year, but anyway, that's life. It's always interesting. But look, you're going to be hopefully rocking down from Newcastle to or various places, but also Norwich. So we will catch you in the wonderful world that is a fine city. Oh, oh, I'm looking forward to Norwich. You're going to be on hand? Yes, hopefully I'll be there. And also, just one last question. I mean, just just what would you say to your an 18-year-old or your 18-year-old self? You know, just that bit of wisdom you thought, God, that would have been really handy to know. But I've learnt it over the decades. I just wondered if there was any particular thing that you thought, oh, yes, just that thing. Like we touched on earlier, if I were to confront myself at that point in my development where I was uncertain, there were a lot of doubts, I was trying to, I was experimenting, find a path, I could say what you can believe in and what you can trust is what we touched on earlier, that you don't have to know what you're doing. You don't have to know exactly where you're going. You can. No problem in that, but you don't have to because you will find it. And you just have to believe that there is within you a guiding geometry that's going to take you in this in a direction. And that's the direction you're supposed to go. You don't have to lose sleep over that. Just believe in it. It's nebulous. It's not defined particularly. You can define it if you want. And you can use it. And you can refine it. And you can develop it once you once you recognize you can do it. But it's like James Dean said. If you don't believe in yourself, nobody else is going to. Yes. That's what's needed, you know. 